You're listening to Ouija Broads. This is Devin. This is Liz. Liz, I'm so glad we got together the day before Christmas to be able to record our last episode of 2020. Okay, it's the 23rd. I need you to know that. It's the day before. It's the the day before. Well, Christmas is tomorrow. (laughs) Not Christmas Day, but Christmas Eve is tomorrow. (laughs) Eve means not yet. (laughs) It's not a day yet. Uh, Excuse you. Eve is not New Year. Excuse you. All Hallows Eve is Halloween. (laughs) (laughs) Nailed it. Called you. Oh my God! Is this wow? Okay. (laughs) <laughs> All right. <laughs> Whatever. This isn't going to air until January anyway. And by then, you'll have forgotten your beef with me. Everyone chill out for a minute. <laughs> I have to thank some patrons because we haven't done that for a minute. <laughs> okay. We have many comings and goings. Oop, my bad. Good to have you with us. Mary Kate, good to have you with us. PNW patron, good to have you with us. We have Mary, we have Rebecca, and we have Steph. What a batch. Oh. See, I needed to get through all that. And I know we have very sweet messages from some folks, too, that I need to look at and respond to. And why I haven't opened them yet is because I know the way I work is if I read them when I don't have enough brain cell to respond, I will just never respond. Mm-hmm. So I'm saving them until I'm in the right headspace, and I have high hopes for that. Perhaps after Christmas, which happens whenever. I guess tomorrow, since today's the day before Christmas. Oh, my God. Steph reached out to me on Instagram. We have had a very good conversation. So I kind of knew in advance that Steph was going to be a patron. Wow, weird flex, but okay. Yeah, whatevs. Whatevs. I take them where I can get them. (laughs) Liz, so this last week I made Jason go antiquing with me in Snohomish, mm. which was, there's this super cute little row street that's got boutiques and a couple of different hippie shops. I'm really surprised that this place can support more than one crystal store <laughs> within a three block stretch, but it can. Happy for it. And at one of the antique shops, I bought a book from 1988 nice. called A Float and a Wash in the Old Northwest by Marge Davenport. Love it. Uh, It's one of those passion projects where someone local just really gets into some specific part of history. In this case, Washington's kind of organs as well, but mostly Washington's maritime history, and then writes a poorly edited but very engaging read about it. Those are some of my favorite books that I use for this show. Same. Because, yeah, yeah, like the treasure ones or the sea monster ones or just any of them where you're like, this is so specific. You wrote this for (laughs) like five people and I'm so glad that I'm one of them. (laughs) I'm so stoked that we are two-fifths of that audience. I was making my wish list from aunties for my parents because I'm a big girl. And I was making... It was, like, a lot, a lot, a lot of books for the show, basically. I should just post it. It was a lot of books. But so many of them were, like, Railroad Ghosts of Ellensburg. (laughs) (laughs) Like, the most specific possible, you know, (laughs) notable people of this town that only ever had 50 people in it at once. And I'm like, yeah, I want to know about them. I want to know. All That's about so much them. more interesting to me than, like, a president is, oh, I yeah. want to know about, you know, the weird mayor that you had one time. 
That's no. way more interesting. Some dude named Bud, who was the sheriff and yeah. the mayor, and also gave the best shave in town. Sounds amazing. <laughs> uh, speaking of niche books, are Facebook buddy and Spokane history researcher extraordinaire Erica Deasy just wrote Ooh. a book, and really? it's yeah, it's on a Spokane woman. I ordered a copy of it. Sister Flora Bilkis, Spokane soapbox revolutionary. Mm. Soapbox revolutionary. Okay, I want to know about this. Sister Flora Bilkis? Yes. B-I-L-K-I-S-S. Oh, okay. I bought us a copy, so we're good. Sister Flora Bilkis, an eccentric and often unorthodox street evangelist and mission operator in Spokane, Washington, believed that any soul willing could be saved, even those whom everyone else had turned their backs on prisoners, immigrants, drunkards, etc. Every morning she would leave her modest shanty on the bank of the Spokane River and head downtown where she would perch upon a soapbox, deliver a hearty sermon, and invite those in attendance for a free meal at her small mission in the heart of Spokane, seedy saloons and cat houses. That's awesome. Okay, so in 1909, in an effort to drive out a growing labor union known as the Industrial Workers of the World, known as Wobblies, the Spokane City Council passed an ordinance that prohibited public speaking on the streets of downtown Spokane. That gave her a hard time. That's fascinating, and I Uh gotta say, like, Way too many of the books that I put on my wish list are about the Wobblies and about the Northwest's tradition of labor unions and the the conflicts that arose from that and the Centralia massacre and everything. And I think it's really just straight up going to be a Vanport situation where there's (laughs) no way to make this light or fun. Uh It's it's such serious business, but it's really fascinating and I'm very interested to read this book. So I'm psyched. I'm psyched. Good job, Erica. Yeah. Good job, Erica. Love reading about a woman. Love that it's written from the perspective of a woman researcher. All about this broad on broad on broad love happening. We'll try to share links to it on our socials. I think that'd probably be a good approach. Absolutely. Awesome. All right. Well, we've done all our derails. We've done all our derails. (laughs) We'll get back into it. This book by Marge Davenport, A Float and a Wash. Oh, oh, no. Back to the derails. Excuse the man who sold me this, because on the front, there is very clearly a... I had to text Liz this, y'all, and I was very upset. They came for the queen. There's a picture of Cadborosaurus. Y'all know what that goofy motherfucker looks like. It's Mm -hmm. obviously Caddy the Cadborosaurus, the fake log dude with a mask, right? When I take it up to the cash wrap, the hundred-year-old dude behind the counter goes, Oh, Ogopogo. And I was like, yeah, awesome. Ogopogo, lake monsters, love cryptozoologies. And he goes, well, do you know where Ogopogo lives? Which lake is he in? Uh, it's only in his fucking name. Dude. It's only in his name, right? And I, so I was no, able to like, go. No, I just got here. Yeah. I don't know where Ogopogo is <laughs> right? from. But I was able to go, well, yeah, Ogopogo's from Lake Okanagan up in Canada. This is Caddy, the Cadborosaurus, though, who's over in Cadboro Bay. So mm-hmm. gotta love those local cryptids, right? And he's just, oh, oh, oh. Oh, yeah, 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 that's who that one is. That, yeah, they never right. have a plan for like, when you know more than them. What the fuck, dude? Why Why are you gatekeeping? Why are you He wanted you to be impressed. He wanted, he, wanted he wanted me to... Dude, I'm the only one that's been buying this book that's been on your shelf for 12 <laughs> fucking years. Don't you think I know why I'm buying it? Like, oh, my lanta. He just rubbed me the wrong way. And that's the thing is... is 
like when somebody shares an interest and they're doing that kind of bid as a way to go, is this also your thing or are you just buying this for somebody else? That's fine. It's yeah. when you, it's when they test you and you know and they have no follow up that you know it was just a test. <laughs> that it was just a test. Yeah, it was just a test. I don't care test. for that shit. No. I do not care for that shit. No. One bit. No. This is me bringing you something with the letter M and you going, oh, yeah, well, you know which one's next is N. And then you go, yeah, what about O and P? And they're like, uh, well, uh, the alphabet. Uh, I don't know. Like, I didn't have a plan. No, I, I sir. I didn't expect you to know what you're talking about. Sorry, but it was worth the $8 for this book, I tell you what. Because A Float and a Wash brought me the kernel of two stories that I'm going to tell you tonight that two are... Stories. They're related by location. Hmm. That location is the coolest fucking sounding location in the world, by the way. It is the graveyard of the Pacific. Yes. 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 We've told stories in and around the graveyard of Pacific. We've danced all around the topic. I don't know if we've ever defined it before. So for some housekeeping, I'll do that. Lay it on us. Yeah. The Graveyard of the Pacific is loosely defined as the stretch of Pacific coast that's known for its maritime disasters that stretches from Tillamook Bay, which is just south of the Columbia River, so it's in Oregon, and it goes all the way north up Washington into the Puget Sound, into the San Juan Islands. It goes all the way to the northern tip of Vancouver Island. So that big whole stretch is all called Graveyard of the Pacific. Liz, why is it called the Graveyard of the Pacific? Because uh, of all the cool, long lives that ships have there. Oh, my gosh. How good stuff goes when you sail. You're, yeah, oh. you're on it. Mm. You're, you're getting there. Yep. Because it's, yeah, happy party ship town where nothing goes wrong and rainbows <laughs> accompany every voyage. It's because thousands of ships mm-hmm. since the 1800s alone, so mm-hmm. 250 years maybe, Thousands of ships have been lost there. We know of at least 2,000 named ships that have been lost in that one stretch of coastline alone since the 1800s. More than 700 people have died Hmm. near the Columbia Bar alone. The mouth of the Columbia in particular, as we just said, 700 lives have been lost since the 1800s right around there alone. I had no idea that, I mean, I knew the Columbia was a big river. It is. <laughs> it ate Vanport. <laughs> it ate Vanport. It ate an entire city. It's the second biggest river this side of the Mississippi. The Missouri is the first biggest. Well, yeah. The Columbia's power is brutal. It's absolutely beyond fathom for me. If you like your facts and figures, it discharges one million cubic feet of water per second. Holy shit. At the mouth of the river into the Pacific. I mean, that estuary is rocking. Yeah, it's it's the kind of river where every time I drive along it, I yeah. still am overwhelmed. Oh, I yeah. still have to check myself if I'm driving not to get distracted by just the sheer size of it. It's You can see how it carved through the rocks. Uh You can see how it shaped Mm -hmm. everything around it. You can see how 
how powerful it is. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's just, mm-hmm. it's it's really something. It's very important. I need everybody to understand how important it is. <laughs> very big, very important. It's like at least very 14 fire river. hoses taped together worth of power. <laughs> taped together. That area, of course, has the Columbia and the massive amounts of water coming out of the Columbia into the Puget Sound where they're mixing and they're creating all these different tides and currents happening. Mm -hmm. But just along the graveyard of the Pacific in general, there are bizarre tides. There is rapidly changing weather. You've got sandbars that are shifting all the time. Mm -hmm. You don't know where one sandbar is going to turn up because the tides and the wind and the current has all shifted the the silt underneath and it's created very deceptively shallow areas of water. Ships can wreck on them. They can beach on them all the time. The place is bananas. Yeah, it reminds me actually of the Thousand Islands and not just because of growing up around there, Mm -hmm. but in both cases, in the case of the Sound and the case of Thousand Islands, you have to kind of think about, I still have this problem where I think of, of bodies of water as having flat bottoms like swimming pools. <laughs> yes. And yes. when you look at the sound and you look at the Oregon coast, you look at the steepness of the Rockies alone mm-hmm. and the the tectonic implications of being on the Pacific Rim, you realize that every island and sandbar represents, you know, a hundred other elevation shifts Mm -hmm. happening just below the water that you can't see. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not to even include stuff like sunken forests or other shipwrecks that you're going to run over and become (laughs) your own shipwreck. Yes! Native American tribes in the area knew to avoid sailing canoes, ships, themselves, anything right in the area of the Pacific coast because Mm -hmm. of its power, ferocity, and apparent hunger for human flesh. It just has the same reputation as the rest of the Northwest, whether it's uh, yeah. the women or the animals or yeah. the weather. It's, fuck around and find out. Fuck around and find out. <laughs> Pacific Ocean gonna get you. Yep. Oh my goodness. But I tell you what, the explorers, the white guys coming over, the Spaniards coming over, they sure as shit didn't. They didn't know that they weren't supposed to mess with the Pacific Ocean because they started messing with it in droves. <laughs> The first recorded victim of the graveyard of the Pacific was in the 1790s, very early 1790s. I don't have an exact year if it's 90, uh, 91, or 92, but it's one of those three. And it was the HMS Chatham, which was under the command of Lieutenant William Broughton. Mm-hmm. Okay, why I'm so psyched, though, is I have been looking at our map again, mm-hmm. our Lost Treasures of Washington, and yep. the Chatham is on there. You know this. You know what's mm-hmm. coming. The Chatham ran aground on what's now called Peacock Spit. It's this sandbar on the north side of the Columbia River. And it's a sandbar that's there pretty frequently. I mean, that's why we're able to name it, right? But Mm -hmm. the ship ran aground on what's now called Peacock Spit, which is the north side of the mouth of the Columbia River. And in this case, Lieutenant Broughton was able to get the Chatham off of the, the, the land that it beached itself on. He was able to shimmy it out, get it back into open mm-hmm. water, and he didn't lose the ship and he didn't lose his crew. But it's still the first recorded incident of a, uh, a wreck, of a beaching, of a, a something going mm-hmm. funky in the Pacific. Well, you kind of need a critical mass of people who are writing stuff down in a way that we <laughs> would get later. Because yes. otherwise you're just... 
boom, you're done. Yes. You're like, nobody knows what happened. Yes, it's a, it's a tree falling in the woods with no one around mm-hmm. to hear it. That doesn't mean that the Chatham escaped the Pacific unscathed. Because you see, in 1792, somewhere, the records are pretty vague where in the sound, but somewhere the Chatham lost her anchor. That's not good. Not good at all, especially when you're how many thousands of miles away from England. And as I found out in my research, anchors are expensive. Are they? I didn't realize this, but they were quite costly, quite treasured. It was going to be real hard. I mean, you weren't going to get another one in the Americas, and it was dangerous to sail back to England without one, but that was kind of your only option. (laughs) Yeah, that really is kind of driving with your brake line. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right? (laughs) I mean, they're just, yeah, whenever they need to slow down, they just put it in second. You know, they don't have a brake, but they're like, well, we can... Oh my god, it's like that first car I had after the Baron. (laughs) Remember the, um... What the fuck car was that? A Taurus? I think so. The green Taurus that... Yes, whenever it got too hot, (laughs) the power, everything would stop working. Yes. So suddenly I don't have power brakes anymore. Yes. Or power steering. Or power steering. And I've just been, like, vibing along driving the car normally, (laughs) and suddenly you have to completely relearn every component of how to operate this vehicle with much more power as you panic. Yep. Oh, and so I. In other words, I know exactly what it's like to have a ship with no anchor yeah, in seventeen ninety something. Yeah, yeah, you do. You're synonymous with uh, Captain Broughton here. Oh <laughs> God, I think that was a car that Mads put a "What would Raffy do?" sticker on it, and you got real pissed. Did that was the that was the Baron? Mads which did that was on pretty, It was pretty moot because there was no paint. No, that was the one where I still think I see it all the time because it was a very common make and model of car. You know, it was like ninety something. Taurus, Forest green, green but Taurus, yeah. You, you always know that it was mine because the person who had it before me had a wheelchair rack on the that's roof, right. and it still had the bolts from the it. Bolts. So I don't think I've ever actually seen that car again. But that's right. Yeah, just you know, when it got over about 95, 98 degrees, mm-hmm. that would just suddenly become a car from a different era. It was. Which we have a lot of hills around here. <laughs> And Spokane does, in fact, get above 90 degrees in the summer. It's quite warm, yeah. Oh, yeah. man. That was anyway. a car that we also couldn't get down uh, Hogan into the house that we lived in together, Fuck, right? Yeah, we that couldn't. Yeah. terrible well, snowstorm. It got, it got snowed in, and then we were trying to <laughs> shovel it out while we got snowed in. And I don't remember what, it would have been like 2008, 2009. Yeah. Or so, and we were very into the we. Do you remember we just, like, that's how we dealt with cabin fever, because we thought we knew yes. what that was back then. Oh, we thought we did. <laughs> but we had the we, and so we would just play we sports and we fit all, all the, the time. time. <laughs> that was so fun. So much of that. My car had gotten just completely snowed in and plowed in, and yep. so you both, like the very nice people you were, were helping me dig it out as we heard the plow approaching. Yeah. So we're freaking out, because we're like, I, I mean... Snowed in and plowed in, as in you could not see the car. No, you could this not. This was a normal Taurus. Like, this was yeah. a, a four-door coupe. Yeah. And it was under snow. Yeah. 100% under the snow. Yes. So we were trying to get it out of there after it had been plowed in. Oh, yeah. With all that snow. And then more snow had fallen on mm-hmm. the top. That was, I remember I was trying to dig a path for Bailey to go pee. Remember? <laughs> yes, you were. God love And ya. it became a problem because you seriously couldn't throw the snow high enough yep. to get it onto 
a thing that was away. Yep. You're like, yep. I can't get out of this channel because it's above my head. The snow is above my head and I'm just in a tunnel and oh, I can't hurl the snow yes. anywhere. There's nowhere to put it. There was It was no. like the okay. Columbia carving itself through the basin. Yeah. You yeah, were just that was what, Columbia LARPing. And, you know, <laughs> oh my absolutely. gosh. But no, remember, because I got in the car because we heard the plow coming. Yes. I'm like, I have to get out of here. But yes. they plowed so idiosyncratically that I could not go around the block. Yes. I ended up driving like two miles yes, away. And I didn't did. have anything on me. I don't even think I had like proper shoes I don't think you on. had real shoes. No, we just threw nope. you in that car, <laughs> brawless and, you yeah. know, in slippers. Uh, just trying to get the fucking car out of the way and then trying to just make it back yes. before anything terrible yes. happened. No, the best, as long as we are criticizing mansplainers, <laughs> was, do you remember the people who lived up the road from us who were getting divorced because of Satan? Ugh, I'd forgotten and, it was because of Satan, but yes. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was because of Satan oh we were goodness. told about this. Remember? And then oh my Trigger. No, it wasn't Trigger. It was um what was the car you had after the gray car? Uh Resner. Resner. Resner was stuck and you know, it was a typical car is stuck because right. ice is slippery yeah. and snow gets up under the chassis yeah. and all this kind of stuff. So like we were dealing with it as one does because we were on, you know, about 16th. It was steep. Yeah. And we we're dealing with it, you know, putting gravel under the tires yeah. and pushing it and everything. I remember that little shit from that yeah. house came out yeah. and it told you to floor it. Floor and you're like, it's in neutral. Floor it. Floor it. What do you mean? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, he said it louder, like we hadn't heard it, and that was why we weren't doing it. Floor it. <laughs> and then there was the, you got a rocket. No shit. <laughs> why do you think I've got two women trying to push from the back? Like, dude. helping oh man if only he'd known he was living with three querios just down the block <laughs> satan would have been the reason for our house too <laughs> oh lordy we were talking I'm not about letting you tell the story at all we were talking about anchors <laughs> and this is this digression is just marvelous i love it but i'll tell you more about anchors, specifically about the Chatham's anchor. See, in 1792, she was in swift moving waters. The tide was coming in and she had dropped her anchor to avoid being swept off course. They were using it as a, a weight, you know, to keep them mm -hmm. pointing the correct direction. And oh my goodness, this, you know, the tide was so strong, the waters were so rough that the cable broke and it snapped the anchor away from the ship. The crew tried several times to recover it. I mean, like I said, it was costly. It was irreplaceable, literally irreplaceable on this coast at this time, but they couldn't find it. So it was one of several anchors. They had others on board. I guess different anchors do different things. There's heavier anchors. There's lighter anchors. There's deeper anchors. There's shallower anchors. I don't get it. But we know that they lost this anchor. We're able to get back to England. Fast forward a couple hundred years. 
Because in 2008, Doug Monk, who's this commercial diver who makes his living diving for nets and for sea cucumbers, apparently, he lives okay. off of getting sea cucumbers out of the Puget Sound and shipping them to Asia where they are eaten. Okay. Good job, Doug. Do what you love and the money will follow. While he's diving in the Puget Sound, he encounters this large piece of barnacle-encrusted metal. He thought it was just, like, trash metal, you know, just whatever hanging out, until he realized that there was a chain attached. And he goes, okay, well, if there's a chain, then this is an anchor. With the help of an amateur historian up here, Scott Grimm, they researched what it could be, and they concluded that it was the long-lost anchor of the HMS Chatham. Amazing. It's It's still doing its job. That's the funny thing about anchors, (laughs) is... (laughs) It really does kind of fail in a working position. It does, doesn't it? It's just the rest of the the boat that's not participating. <laughs> they had artistic differences and went their separate ways. You can't blame them. The boat was still a boat. The anchor was still an anchor. Good job. Yeah, everybody's following their bliss just separately. Just separately. You know, it's an amicable separation. It took until 2014 for Doug and Scott to be able to raise the anchor. And this is quite the anchor. It is 10 feet long. It is 2,400 pounds. Now, this is just raising questions for me of if they had reached it. Like, say the Chatham goes, loses its anchor and it's like, oh, shit. It's like dropping a contact and you're like, nobody move. Nobody move. I'm going back. And you find it, then what? What were they going to do? It's on the bottom. How big is it? It's 10 feet and 2,400 pounds? Did they have diving bells? Were they going to send little Aquaman down to To, hook it up again? Weld? Yeah, how do you attach to it? You can't just kind of bungee that shit (laughs) to where it used to be. (laughs) A couple of tow ropes. I have no idea what they were going to do. I do not know the mechanics of a 1792 ship yeah. trying to Retrieving haul an <laughs> two and a half elephants on board. God, how did they even get those around? Did they carry that? Now I just need to know about ships. Okay, well, Damn it. You're okay. going to have to read on that because this Carry was on. the extent of my interest. I just knew it was real damn big. Real <laughs> damn big. They managed to get the anchor up off the seafloor. Thank you, modern technology. They got it cleaned they got it restored they got it blasted with some black rust repellent paint so now this anchor looks good as new they are seventy thousand dollars into fixing up this anchor and a texas a&m researcher goes well that can't belong to the hms chatham no, no, that's a thousand pounds heavier than an anchor would have been in 1790. Mm. No, this is some 1800s anchor. I mean, it's cool. One of like 70. One of like 70 million, right? No. Also, he found it in off of Whidbey Island, and other researchers say, no, the Chatham lost it in the Bellingham Channel, not off of Whidbey. There's no way 2,400 pounds, you know, rolled across the seafloor over to here. Yeah. It's the wrong weight. So sorry. It's an anchor that could have been used by a ship up until the 1950s. Oh, my God. That's not satisfying at all. This could be nothing. Thing. 
I mean, it's you still have a, a giant anchor. You could put it in your yard. You could put it in your yard. Uh, um, as of 2016, the anchor is in storage. Doug and well, Scott. It could go in my yard. It could go in your yard. You're very generous. Well, Doug and Scott really want it to go to a museum. In a 2016 news article, that's what they said. They would really like for it to go to a local maritime museum as the anchor of the HMS Chatham, one oh. of Vancouver's lost treasures. And when asked what is it worth, they said, well, it's worth what someone will pay for it. And I will tell you, as someone who works in museums, we don't pay for our objects. That. <laughs> <laughs> So, you could get it purchased by a wealthy benefactor who wants to donate it to a museum. But most, I mean, fine art museums, obviously, like they wheel and deal, they buy fine art. But an artifact museum is, unless there's a benefactor or a donor who wants to buy it and have it donated in their name, that's probably not going to happen, babies. I love when you get to bring in areas of expertise like that to things like this. So fun. The thing is, as I'm hearing you talk about they're willing to sell it as this anchor, mm -hmm. that seems like also, I remember you telling me back in Witch's Castle that you don't really get to put stipulations on that when the museum takes possession of something. Yes. You can't be like, you, and you have to call it this. Right. Muse yeah, it, a lot of times it's you have to display this in perpetuity. When you display it, you must credit my great-grandmother and tell her life story with it. Yeah, very, I mean, in the accession, you, uh, you, you want to have that stipulation section blank. You don't <laughs> want to have all these things that you have to make good on years and years down the road. So, like I said, as of 2016, that's the most current news article I can find. Monk and Grimm are still trying to date the anchor. They're trying to figure out the provenance of it. Is it indeed the Chathams as they believe? Or does it belong to a different shipwreck? One of the 2,000 that have happened in the last 200 years or so. Yeah. And it's still cool, even if it's totally. not... The one they thought it was, but guys, this is not how we go about science, gentlemen. We don't right? say, I want it to be this one. Yeah. So I'm going to look into figuring out why it's this one. Liz, as a researcher, you, that's actually like not kosher, right? You don't say what you want the outcome to be and then test trying to get the outcome, right? No, you can say what you think is going to happen. And then you try to test and see what happens from there. And I think generally, when you're thinking about research or, or science or any kind of question like this where, where there's a black box component where it's not up to you, right? Where you're yeah. going to test it and you're going to get the results that you're going to get, whether it's data or the metal or digging into the history or whatever. It's about the framework that you approach the question from shaping so much of even how you interact with the parts that should be objective. Mm. So it's always a good idea if you can to try to prove the opposite of what you're trying to prove. Okay. So they should try to prove that it's not the Chatham's anchor. 
and think, how would I go about that? Well, I could prove it if the metal was wrong. I could prove it if the weight was wrong. Mm -hmm. I could prove it if the location is wrong. Mm -hmm. And then you start doing that and you start going, oh, okay, this actually might not be. (laughs) Or on the other hand, if you were really, really wanted it to be and you could say, okay, well, I'm going to try to prove that it's not. Well, I can't use the metal to do that because the metal is from the right era. And the weight matches really closely with what I would expect. Mm -hmm. And it looks like the description in this, you know, then you have to rule all those ways out that you can't rule it out, which seems like an ass-backward way to do it, but we we make a lot of shortcuts in our brains. So sometimes it's good to just give your brain the opposite job so it has to make different shortcuts and you'll see things differently. Right. Oh, I love that approach. I remember that from like the the one debate meeting that I tried to go to. The <laughs> the yeah, argue try arguing for the opposite side of what you want to yeah. argue, and then you'll figure out where there's holes in your own argument. Yeah, it definitely helps. Well, it sounds like, for one, the location is a maybe, and the weight is probably a very mm-hmm. definite mismatch. So I'm not going to scratch that one off of our Lost Treasures of Washington map just yet. No. Although I will mention, as long as we're on the treasures thing, I was like, well, we're not quite there yet on anything on this becoming non-canonical you know (laughs) i guess db cooper can still get in on that all the mysteries are over 2020 could he has a couple days but i want to tell people i am aware of the latest updates in the forest fen treasure case yes and we'll be giving devin an update on that yes i can't wait (laughs) i've been skimming articles and i thought now liz will do it liz will do an actual episode on this i don't have to keep reading yeah i might pair it with another treasure just because probably the update itself is not a whole episode's Worth. There was a lot of update in the first update, but this yes. is just like, always something new with this motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> Marvelous. Marvelous, darling. Well, before I tell you the next part, I want to make sure that we're thanking our episode sponsor. I got the best message from Jesse on Instagram who said that since since she started sponsoring our podcast, she's gotten like 50 new likes on her Instagram, 50 new followers. Oh, nice. So it's actually working. Y'all by going there are proving to her that a sponsorship with us is lucrative. So you're, you're, you're paying for the hosting fees. Thank you so much. Jesse and on Instagram again, it's Jesse, J E S S E underscore sells underscore land. She's the one who sells the coolest, weirdest properties here in the Pacific Northwest. She's got a new thing, which is she got her drones pilot license. So now I know. So she can take, I mean, if you're selling your house through her, she can take aerial photography of your house that you're selling with her. But what I like is that now she's going to be able to take drone photography of all the really bizarre farms and stuff she sells. So I can get as creepy as I want at these places where Google Maps doesn't go because Jessie's going to take care of it for me with her drone. That is fascinating to me. I'm looking at this one. The Familia Salazar Dairy is up for sale. <gasps> do you want to yeah. buy a dairy with me? In Yakima? Yes. Oh! Yes, I do. It has three houses. Well, There's four bed, three bath house, a one bed, one bath home, and a five bed, five bath home. All equipment feed and livestock included <gasps> over 600 heads of cow. And you grow the feed on the property. What? <gasps> I'm like, I'm ready to change what? my life. Yes, I'm ready to change my life. I'll even give you the five bed house because you've got the kid. Thank you. I'll take the oh, four bed. Nice. Will can we like Airbnb the one bed 
We could make it like a Ouija yeah, board retreat. Yeah, I'm like, instead of charging people, we'll just have people come over. That's the dream. It, that is <laughs> just like, dream. I can just put people up. Oh my gosh. That's what I would love to do if we ever took the time to, because I've had this double lot and it actually used to have more buildings yeah. on it. And I'd love to make a, I think a one car garage or maybe a two car mm-hmm. with a little apartment at the top. Oh, yes. Because then just like anybody you knew, right? Yes. Like if somebody needed a place to stay, you'd always have a place for them, but it would still be kind of private. And I think about like when I, in back in March when I was quarantining inside the home so that mm-hmm. I didn't get Matt and Lid sick, like that would have been so good. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I come from, I come from people who love cottages and cabins yes. and little backyard writing houses like my mom yes. has and all that kind of stuff. Oh, <laughs> well, so when Jason and I visit Spokane these days, we get a hotel because it's, it's just mm-hmm. quite cramped at my parents' house with my brother and two dogs and my parents. Yeah. So I could just rent out your above garage mother-in-law mm-hmm. suite. I would be with you all yeah. the time. We would have a chance to record in person. I mean, hey, if we get another sponsor or two, Maybe <laughs> that's where the money goes. Yeah, that makes total sense math-wise. It was very solid. I forgot we were in the middle of a sponsorship. I'm just talking to you. I know. I'm just talking to you, too, which is marvelous. Oops. Whatever. Again, on Instagram. Oh, by the way, I'm on Instagram. I'm trying to get us to 1,000 followers. I need 49 more by the end of 2020. You're going to be listening to this after 2020. Yeah. But, <laughs> however... Houndst ever, I still want you to please follow us on Instagram if you're not, so I can say that I did it, you know, early 2021. We're the Ouija Broads, but you want to go follow Jesse Sells Land. Jesse is J-E-S-S-E underscore Sells underscore Land. On Instagram, go have fun looking at all of her really cool properties. Yeah, and if you're not on Instagram, it's WashingtonStateLandForSale.com. Everything spelled just the standard way. That's generally how I go. I like to search things. <laughs> you can see a lot more photos on her website, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, thanks, Jesse. Thanks, Jesse. Back to the story. I have a different Graveyard of the Pacific disappearance. Another mysterious disappearance here in this alley of destruction. This one I can pronounce. The ship is called the J.C. Cousins. Okay. It's not just an anchor that's missing. Oh, no. It is, in fact, the entire crew. And the ship? No. Or just the crew? Just the crew. Oh. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. The J.C. Cousins was built in San Francisco in 1863 as a pleasure cruiser, But, like, immediately the owner had to sell it, probably for financial reasons. It was a 66-foot luxury yacht that then became a pilot boat. So, in 1861, what it's doing was it got sold to a group of skippers who were using it at the mouth of the Columbia to help merchant ships navigate through the sandbars. Wow. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Cool job, right? On October 6th, 1883... The J.C. Cousins was fully crewed, and it left from Astoria, Oregon, on what would be its final voyage. That day, the Cousins was seen anchored off the Peacock Spit. We talked about that being that little bar just north of the mouth of the Columbia. Yeah. And it was sitting there waiting for merchant ships to come along that needed guidance through the sandbars. But by that afternoon, things started to look really odd. 
The crew of the tugboat Mary Tyler reported that they saw the Cousins on the move with its sails trimmed, headed seaward. And this was odd because there were no ships in sight. There was no reason for the Cousins to be heading out into open water. There was no ship to navigate. Um, Hmm. And the Mary Tyler also noticed that the Cousins seemed to be sailing directly through the breakers as opposed to going along the edge of the channel and then going out kind of around some of the roughest surf into calmer waters. It was just like balls to the wall plowing right through the surf. They continued to watch it and they noticed that it went a few miles out to sea, then swung around and started sailing back toward the bar. I don't like this. As the Mary Tyler continued to watch it didn't hit the bar. Instead, it turned around again and headed Stop straight back weird. out to sea. Very mm-hmm. weird. The cousins continued to do this. It sailed in circles all evening, according to the Mary Tyler and to other people on shore who were watching. It just made these loops from the bar to the ocean, back to the bar to the ocean, and then night falls, and everybody loses sight of the cousins. The next morning, everyone was very curious to know what was happening, and when they looked out, the cousins was on the move, doing the <laughs> same sea-to-bar-to-sea oh, circles. It did that all <clears throat> night. That's very unwholesome. So unwholesome. So Ugh, it's just that not quite right. It's like the not deer. It's doing what a ship is supposed mm-hmm, to be mm-hmm, doing, but mm-hmm. not quite. Mm-hmm. Then at 1 p.m., the cousins turns around in the ocean and starts heading back to the land. But this time, it made no effort to come about. Its sails were full of wind, and it headed straight into the beach, where oh, it shit. landed in the sand beached itself hard, and came to rest kind of tilted to one side. Oh, fuck. So locals, doing exactly what you're doing, which is saying, oh, fuck, they yeah. ran down to the beach to go see what was up, but be- but because the tide was still high enough, they weren't able to get to the ship. They had to wait a couple hours for the tide to go out for them to be able to walk out into the surf and get to the ship. But they reported that the entire time they watched, there was no movement from the deck. Yeah, because you'd be watching to go, oh, are they injured? Are they coming out? Are they waving a flag or something? Nothing. When the locals finally reached the schooner, the crew were not to be found. The log books were missing from the wheelhouse, and Mm. both lifeboats were missing, which suggested that the crew abandoned the ship willfully, but why? Yeah. Well, there's a few theories as to why. This is Marie Celeste shit. I have to call oh, that out. Yes, Marie Celeste shit. Oh my gosh. Goose bumps. What James Gibbs, the author of the book Pacific Graveyard, suggests is that the crew accidentally beached the cousins on an unseen sandy shoal sometime before the Mary Tyler saw her. So beached it and then abandoned the ship. And then, you know, the Mary Tyler didn't report seeing anyone getting into lifeboats. So this would have happened before their bizarre loops. So Gibbs surmises that they 
abandoned the ship because once it was beached, it was very likely that it was going to be pounded to bits by the surf. The water mm-hmm. is so rough there that it could have torn the ship apart. So he assumes that they abandoned ship, and in their little lifeboats, they were swamped and all crew drowned. Mm. The weird thing is that, okay, that happens, and then the ship gets free of the sandbar and is left to do these big, lazy circles. But gosh, what a weird coincidence that the sails were trimmed in just such a way that they would catch the wind and the outgoing waters and currents and then turn and come back. Just bizarre to have had the sails. I mean, if it's a coincidence, it's it's just one of those weird coincidences where it seems so purposeful that the ship is going in circles. And yet, it really could have just been a right combination of the wind and tide. But strange. It's spooky. Yeah. And spooky. Old timers had a different theory, though. The saltiest sea dogs around <laughs> suggested a few things. There were four, actually. One was sea monsters. No elaboration, sure, yeah. but sea monsters. Another thought... Just towing it back and forth. Just, just, you know, hanging out. Well, the sea monsters ate the crew, and then the ship oh, just yeah, was yeah, doing yeah. its thing. Okay. Uh, they also suggested a mutiny, but there was really no reason why the crew would want to mutiny against their captain and then just disappear. Yeah, and also, you don't, like, mutiny and then leave. And then leave, you know? yeah. <laughs> you, okay, you, well, thanks for the ship. I'm done with uh, it. Don't, Let's all get yeah. in the lifeboats. Yeah. Really, this was just, this was performative. I was making yeah. a point. It was a demonstration. Con- I was acting out. <laughs> I'm sorry. I've been going through some stuff. But I did kind of beach the entire ship, so we do need to leave. I'm sorry I think, about that. I think, yeah, this has actual consequences now. <laughs> a third suggestion was that one of the crew members, Mr. Zeber, who apparently no one really knew. He was a new guy in town. Not much was known about him. But it was suggested that maybe he had been hired by a competitor to murder the crew and wreck the ship and then get away on his own. And a few years later, some mariners who returned to Astoria from the Far East claimed to have seen Mr. Zeber living in Asia alive and well. This doesn't apparently make a ton of sense because the Cousins was insured. So if a competitor was like, yeah, wreck that ship, put him out of business, it didn't do any good because... The company that owned the Cousins got enough insurance money from it wrecking itself on the beach to buy a whole nother ship. And it happened just a few days later. So, Oh, my God, really? Yeah, apparently just a few days later. Yeah, they were not out of business long. We're not out of business long. I'm going to listen to your fourth thing before I I raise my quibble with a lot of this. So I will let you continue. You'll like this theory the best. The fourth. Better than sea monsters? Oh, it's better than sea monsters because Gibbs includes a quote in this. Mm. According to Gibbs, there's an alternative theory, which is the cousins was the victim of a ghost ship. Excellent. Keep talking. (laughs) He says that the old... Mariners said, and he put this part in in quotes as though it were relayed to him, but 
the wreck did happen in the 1800s and this book was written in Mm -hmm. 1950. But here's the quote. A ship of the dead that sails the sea with a ghostly crew. In the tempest she appears and before the gale or again it, she sails without a rag of canvas and without a helmsman at the wheel. The crew were scared so badly of being rammed or boarded by the ghost ship that they took to their lifeboats to escape, but were swamped and drowned. So that is my concern with most of these explanations <laughs> that aren't sea monsters, where they, sea monsters. basically all assume a situation in which all of the crew to a man says, in this meat grinder of a fire hose of a river <laughs> that our entire job is trying to get other ships through because it's that much of a nightmare. Mm-hmm. I'm going to feel better on a little lifeboat than on this ship. And I'm not saying it couldn't happen. You know, there are times when you do need to abandon ship, but especially I think the murder one where it's like, wait, so he just worked his way Jason Voorhees style <laughs> through the whole ship, like some sleepaway camp, one by one. He was that much of a scary, badass killer that he just committed a massacre, like, without being stopped. And then goes, and I'm going to get in this little lifeboat now that I can definitely manage all by myself. And I'm going to paddle my little butt back to, uh, you know, wherever. And then go to China, as one does. <laughs> that's a big lifestyle change for however much he got paid to like kill how many people like a a lot of people risk his life and then move to asia ghost ship is sounding plausible i i have been almost scared out of my pants before so i could sure be scared not out that of it a takes boat. much to get you out of the pants. <laughs> no it does not and in fact if i'm a little scared i'm quite likely to get out of them quicker <laughs> so you don't think you can be scared out of a boat that's just it is i'm like i people couldn't even swim no most of the time no. back in those days i wouldn't be like i'm gonna get out of the boat no. i'm gonna feel better Th- in in the waves, I feel better if I can touch the waves. I feel much more secure right, that way. Right, the ocean is the scariest thing I can think of. So there had to be something on that ship that was scarier than the actual ocean. The ship is surrounded by ocean. You are living yeah. in your fears. What is scary enough on the ship? Like a bigger ocean? That's not how oceans work. It would have to be a smaller mm-hmm. ocean to be on the ship. That's how and that works. And then you wouldn't need to leave. Then That's just math. Math, people. I'm Fuck just sake. logicking my way through it. Yeah. But, okay. But with the ocean being that scary, though, the premise that you would see the ghost ship and go, it's gonna ram us, so I'm gonna leave. Like, wait and see. <laughs> Maybe it rams you. And then you still have time to get in the lifeboats, I think. <laughs> I don't know. Ships go down pretty quick, don't you think? Uh, well, if they actually get rammed, then maybe, I don't know, just such like a, it's a weird reaction. It's like <laughs> me playing any video game where when something attacks me, I immediately hit escape because I don't want to deal with it and it scared me. I know. I know. For me, it's <laughs> like, pause it. I'm in a car and there's a herd of rhinoceroses who are going to ram my car. I don't get out of the car and think, yes, yeah. I'm safer out here on on my feet. Yeah, I feel like they would try to deal with the situation of the boat that they knew. You'd think unless, so. 
I don't know. It just... All of this is very strange, though, because that's... I mean, also, the murder theory, I assume... I mean, they got the ship back. I assume there's not, like, a bunch of machete marks and (laughs) blood everywhere. (laughs) I don't know. He he poisoned the potatoes or something. Yeah. The hard tack and gruel. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) For whatever reason, the crew of the cousins is lost to us. They're lost to history. We don't actually know what happened to them. I do like the ghost pirate ship explanation. (laughs) Best sea monsters are second best. Yo ho, -ho, Mike. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I like ghost ship best, obviously, because it's a ghost yeah. ship, and that's pretty cool, and, you know, that that's a classic. Oh, so that's, Scooby-Doo. That's just very, yeah, exactly. Like, you see it everywhere, it's a classic for a reason, it yeah. works. But I think the part that I keep thinking about is the part where wherever they initially left the ship, mm-hmm. the configuration of all the sails yes. and the... The rudder and the anchor, whatever was yes. going on, was exactly right to lift it off the first sandbar, mm-hmm. move it in to where people could see it, mm-hmm. and then let it do its spooky waltz it's spooky for, waltz. like, 16 hours. You're absolutely right, that's what that was. And that that part troubles me because it's just too many coincidences, mm-hmm. I think, which is not a real thing, uh, right? Yeah. That's not... You can you can say that logically, like it's it's tripping red flags for me because it's too many coincidences. Yeah. You can't say that's too many coincidences to have happened because that's not how happening works. No, no. But the fact that it made its way home without them intact yes. when they presumably left it because they thought it would not survive. Yes. And it makes its way home intact and then also does the waltz. It's the two together that stress me out. Because it's not like they found it where it had been abandoned doing some weird shit. It's like it came over and made everybody look at it being spooky. It did. It did. It came over, it walked in circles while making eye contact for like (sighs) 16 hours before kamikazeing itself on a sandbar and then waiting. The tension continued to build for hours. The most dramatic point. Oh, that (laughs) ship is a Leo. (laughs) The tides were high and so was the drama. (laughs) Marvelous. That is my next tattoo. Not getting an anchor with I refuse to sink on it. That's, yeah. no, I'm getting the tides were high and so was the drama. <laughs> That's the whole job of an anchor. That's <laughs> the whole fucking point. <sighs> yeah. I think, although I like the idea that it's, you're now representing yourself like with an anchor as the, the Chatham's anchor, right? Yes. Where you're like, look, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. <laughs> And if the rest of you are going to just flibberty jib it off, I can't be held responsible. Oh my god. You get the Chatham's anchor and your 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 banner across it says, did my job. <laughs> <laughs> Worked flawlessly. Teamwork makes the dream work. Yes. That's all I can say. Yes. Yes. Those are my two lost items of the Pacific Graveyard that I wanted to share with you today. And I'm so glad I got to bring those to you thanks to this bizarre 1980s niche book. 
That's awesome. I like both of them so much. Oh. I find them... Oh, that's just so interesting. This is cool. It's cool. It's cool. This book has mm. so many other stories. Definitely these little tiny bite sizes, they'll have to be crudite or tapas. They'll have to meld <laughs> into one larger episode, but we will definitely be revisiting the stories in this book for future episodes. Oh, that's really fun. I'm very excited. Yes. That's all. That's all. Folks, thank you so much for joining us for those brilliant, spooky tales of the Pacific Graveyard. We can't wait to bring you more. In the meantime, come hang out with us on social media. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. We're on Twitter. Throw a couple dollars our way on Patreon and you get behind the scenes exclusive access to all kinds of fun stuff. Liz and I do warm-ups there. We post rough cuts. We post outtakes. It's a really cool little community to come hang out with us in. What else do I want, Liz? What am I missing? Our website, WeJabrods.com, where you can go and check out all of our fun merchandise. You can check out show notes. You can check out guides. I'm trying right now to get our merchandise, specifically our stickers, our maps, and our cards into a store in Spokane. So stay tuned. If we are for sale in real space, I will tell you about that next episode. What else do we want, Miss Liz? I'm just thinking about the holidays because I know it is a tough time whether you're close to your family or mm, not, mm-hmm. honestly. Like, there's just so many expectations, and this is a year that has been disruptive to tradition. So I guess I want, this is going to be oddly sincere, but I would like everybody listening, including you, to do something nice that's just for you mm, at yeah. some point. A little thing, if that's all you can manage, just because you made it and you're here and you deserve a nice treat. Yeah, you do deserve a nice treat. You should celebrate yourself, whether that's just words Mm -hmm. of affirmation, whether that's a hot tub soak, a bathtub soak, a splashing cold water on your face. I wonder, I could have kept listening to that list. I'll I'll give you more lists. I mean, shit. I like that you got serious there for a minute because that is worth saying, my friend. Oh, you're so smart. I'm so glad I get to do the show with you. Yeah, I'm still having a very, very good time. Yes. Doing yes. Oh my gosh. I keep seeing more stories I want to do all the time. I, I just, I have a book about the graveyard of the Pacific behind me on the shelf right now, and I want to go read it. Oh, go read like, it. I have like, I gotta like wrap Christmas presents and stuff. I gotta deal with life, but I just want to go read about more shipwrecks. Yeah, because tomorrow's Christmas, right? <laughs> Woman. <laughs> oh, friends. Oh. <sighs> Well, something outside is like wooing, but like in a in a spooky but also calming way, like ooh, and it's <laughs> you know it's like a it's like a the wind, like a joke ghost. I think it must be a car like going a joke fast. Ghost. Well, you know what I mean, like a like a, not a real ghost, like a fake ghost, like one on TV. <laughs> Fuck. Well, you know what kind of ghost I mean, though. Like not not a real ghost in real life would go ooh, you know, but they do that on TV. You know what I mean? Okay. You know what I mean. Anyway, friends, it's time to wrap it up. And what we always do at the end, you know it, you love it. We want you to live weird. Die weird. And stay weird. Hell yeah. Thank you for listening. Yeah.